0: From Bean Media Production, this is Business Essentials. Practical advice and ideas to grow your business.
1: To me, it's about being able to manage multiple levels of complexity and multiple levels of intensity.
2: Culture is pivotal to performance, and if we can get the culture right, performance will improve.
3: That's Steve Simpson of Keystone Management Services and business coach Ricky Novak on why great culture and great leadership matter in business. Welcome to episode 11 of Business Essentials Podcast, brought to you with the support of chartered accountants and business advisors, Cummings Flavor McCormack. I'm Peter Letz. This episode, we hear from Steve Simpson, creator of the globally acclaimed Unwritten Ground Rules, the perceptions around the way things are done, which constitute an organization's culture. He walks us through the three conditions necessary to achieve a standout culture a little later. But first, what makes an outstanding leader? And how do you foster those attributes in yourself and your team? Ricky Novak has trained managers at many of Australia's top companies and presented internationally on the topic of leadership. And she's author of How to Make Good People Great Leaders and Reap the Rewards. In the book, she uses the concept she calls the three R's of leadership to make great leaders – so, what are the three R's? Ricky Novak explains to Chris Ashmore.
1: Resilience, respect, and relationship. Not in any particular order and not in any particular priority, but I see them all as being equally focused. And I think the resilience is the one that underpins it in many ways.
0: Can you explain what resilience is?
1: To me, it's about being able to manage multiple levels of complexity and multiple levels of intensity, sometimes physical sometimes mental. I was recently on a plane and watched the air hostess pull down the oxygen mask. And I thought, you know what? We often get it wrong, don't we, when it comes to resilience. We intuitively want to give our oxygen mask to someone else. But I think resilience is about putting on our own oxygen mask first and saying, well, if I can get through this, if I can breathe through this, if I can understand how I can manage better, then maybe I'm actually going to be in a better position as a leader, to to manage others. And is it always going to be easy? No, but I think we can adjust the flow and that's up to us.
0: So it really goes without saying that you really need to be resilient to be an effective leader.
1: Yeah, you absolutely do. And, you know, we have to draw down deep to understand are we in the best position right now to manage a certain situation? And if we don't feel that we are in the best position, it's actually okay to call for help. And good leaders actually do that.
0: And how do you build that resilience?
1: Well, relationships are dynamic, um, but you often can build your resilience through the relationships that you have with others as well. Sure, experience is a great way to build resilience and sure, there'll be times that we call it trial by fire and we get the experience after we need it most and maybe then we think we're more equipped next time and maybe we are and maybe we're not. But experience is important, but also keeping things in perspective in my view, um, helps us build resilience because if we give in too quickly and catastrophize the future, worry about it, beat ourselves up if we don't get it right, we can't build our resilience. We're only going to deplete ourselves. So making sure that we keep the situation in perspective, look at some short-term wins, look at some people who can help us along the way,
0: we'll build. Well, in your book, how to make good people great leaders, you write about the CASH acronym, K-A-S-H could you briefly explain what that is?
1: Yeah, well, um, it's not the cash in the wallet, but by doing these four things, the KASH, we might be able to put some more in there. And basically, the K is the knowledge, the knowledge that you have about yourself, about a situation. It's what knowledge do you have of your current client base? What knowledge do you need to have? How are your people tracking? How are you tracking? What else could you learn before you open your mouth? As we say, we need to do our homework before our mouth work. So, it's the knowledge that we need to actually gather before we start to try and repair perhaps a situation or deal with a situation. The second part of the acronym is the A, is our attitude. What is our attitude? Is it a healthy one? Is it a legacy from someone else that we have unconsciously adopted? And, and as a result, our attitude may be tainted and therefore not as honest because we're adopting someone else's principles. The S stands for skills. They're the skills we need to be adopting. Learning and constantly honing to ensure we maximise our impact. And lastly, habits, the H, the habits that we come to work with that we consciously or subconsciously relate to and we pull out. How can we be better equipped to understand are they positive or perhaps holding us back?
0: Another R of leadership is uh, relationships. How does a leader build better relationships with their staff? It can be tough as not everyone's the same and responds the same way in interacting with their boss, right? Clearly,
1: and uh, relationships will vary from time to time with everyone. And um, workplaces are no different. They're always going to be dynamic. People want more than anything else to be valued. We know that. We know that they need to be acknowledged and we know that they need to be respected. Just being aware of their needs is not enough. What is really required is action and that's sometimes just a simple thing like checking in. And the more often we can just actually keep our eye on that person's heart, head and hands, we've got a good way to build a relationship.
0: Well, the final R is respect if you build good relationships with your team, doesn't respect naturally flow from that?
1: In a perfect world, yes, but no. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Look, you can have good relationships with someone, but when it comes down to a value-based decision or action, that's when you might pull back. You know, I can work well with someone if I don't respect their values. I'm unlikely to want to work with them on other projects. And I think we need to be sharing and collaborating constantly in the world we live in. Can't risk it.
3: Ricky Novak. Companies need to recognise the importance culture has on the bottom line. And once they do, they can make steps towards changing the culture for the better. So says Steve Simpson of Keystone Management Services. Steve is best known as creator of the globally acclaimed Unwritten Ground Rules, or UGRs, the often negative precepts in a company which drive people's behaviour. To achieve success in business, a standout culture is a must, and Steve says three conditions are necessary to achieve a standout culture. First, though, he reveals to Chris Ashmore the results from research into why culture is so important for business. 91% of senior leaders said 20% or more improvement
2: would occur if the culture was realistically improved. Even more incredible was that 58%, percent—that 6 out of 10 middle managers, said 50% or more improvement would occur. So this tells us, I think, that culture is pivotal to performance. And if we can get the culture right,
0: performance will improve. Well, you're well known for starting the UGR, or Unwritten Ground Rules, concept, which we've spoken to you about before on BE previously. Um, can you remind us briefly about the UGRs and how easily a business can be undermined if those at the top don't appreciate how others in the organisation think? Well, as you say, UGRs stands for Unwritten Ground Rules, which
2: is I define as people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. So it's the UGRs that actually constitute a team or organisation's culture. So the UGRs can really undermine things within a business. For example, if my UGR is they don't care about my new ideas or even worse we come across can be whenever you share an idea, managers pinch it and use it as their own, that's going to drive people's behaviour. So I'm at a meeting and a boss will say, any ideas on how we can improve this. I've got an idea, but there's no way I'm going to share it because my UGR is driving my behaviour. That's how businesses can be really undermined by UGRs. So what does a standout culture look like and how do you define a standout culture? That's a really interesting question, Chris, because I think it can be viewed incorrectly by a lot of people. My view is that a standout culture is when the UGRs are aligned with those cultural attributes which are shaped to ensure a company's future success and to make it a great place to work. Their starting point should be envisaging the aspirational culture that they need to be truly successful and to make it a great place to work, and then ensuring that the UGRs and culture are aligned with that aspirational culture. That,
0: for me, defines what a standout culture really is. Well, for any organisation, Steve, you say there are three necessary conditions in achieving a standout culture. Could you take us through each one? Absolutely, Chris. Um, The first one, I'd
2: say, is a result of some work I was doing with a company that had a lot of engineers in it. And uh, I had a session with the top 70 leaders of this company over the duration of a day, and they really loved my UGRs concept and really keen to explore their culture using the concept of UGRs. So uh, that was great, and we reconvened in a month when I was rather surprised because some of the leaders grabbed me and said, look, have a look at what we've been doing on our culture and UGRs work. And as soon as I saw what they showed me, Chris, I really had to pull out my skills of diplomacy as much as I could because what they showed me was a sophisticated computer program. It was a critical path method or PERT chart with all these sophisticated projects that they'd mapped out, improvement projects based on the work we'd done a month prior. And it was at that point I became really clear and had to share with them the fact that culture is far less about project improvement initiatives and strategies and far more about how you as a leader live your daily life. And that, that, I think, is a point that is many times lost on leaders. As soon as culture change becomes a raft of culture change initiatives, then they're going to compete with the existing busy workload that leaders have. And when times are tough, which is going to win? Of course, it's the normal operational procedure stuff. So culture, I think, and that's not to discredit some improvement projects that will need to happen, but culture is far more about what have I got to do as a leader in my day-to-day interactions, the way I carry out my work, to send a message about culture. That's the essence of culture, how leaders live their lives, how they interact with people in their day-to-day work.
0: So how does a CEO or leader change his or her pattern of thinking to keep culture front of mind?
2: Well, again, I can reflect on a story where I was working with an engineering company in this instance, and I was in Western Australia, actually, in a social setting, having a chat with the senior leaders. who were all from interstate, and I was from interstate. And so we were just involved in social conversation, and Rebecca, the HR leader, was sat next to me, and she just mentioned something in passing, She thought there was nothing of significance in what she said. I thought quite the reverse, because Rebecca was commenting on a person who was about to join the senior leadership team, and she said, I know Graham's going to be great just from the questions that he asked. Now, that hit me big time, and soon after that, I had a session with the senior leaders where I asked them this question. I said, if I went to the people who report to you and asked them, and they were candid with me, I asked them... What are your senior leaders' top three priorities? I wonder what they'd say. And we did that exercise with the senior executive team and put on a whiteboard their guesses at how that question would be answered. And, of course, culture did not emerge. It was cost-cutting, it was operational issues, customer service, those sorts of things. So what was my point? My point was it's from the questions that you ask and don't ask that people deduce what's most important. And if you think that culture is a priority, but other people deduce that it's not, then guess what? It's not. So we've got to, as leaders, give a very clear message that culture is a top three priority. And one way to do that is thinking about the questions that we ask and don't ask
0: to help reinforce that message. So that's the second condition necessary for achieving culture. Yes. And the third one is staff needing to take genuine ownership of culture. That's it, Chris. And
2: I think this one is most often overlooked in any initiatives for culture change because I think there's a risk with leaders. And the risk is that they think that they bear sole responsibility for the culture as it is. Now, once you learn about UGRs, people realise that that's not the case. There's evidence of this. We can have an ordinary leader with a good culture. Why? Why? because of the UGRs. We can have a good leader with an ordinary culture. Why? Because of the staff and their UGRs. So staff play their part in creating and sustaining the culture. So I would say to leaders that you are the primary, but not the sole carriers of culture. And if that's the case then staff have got to take responsibility. Oftentimes it's the case that staff take a cop-out position. They'll point upwards and say, if only they'd fix things up, we'd be okay. That's a cop-out. So we need to engender shared responsibility for the culture where staff realise that they play the game of UGRs and we can create an exciting context where we're all fighting for a more
3: positive productive culture. And that truly can be very exciting. Steve Simpson, Keystone Management Services. In episode 12 of Business Essentials podcast, we speak with the leaders of two successful and well-known Australian businesses. First, there's Anthea Hammond, CEO of Scenic World, a third-generation family business in the Blue Mountains near Sydney.
1: At the end of the day, the staff are what drives our business. We really try and create a special and memorable moment for all our guests. And if we do that, then we've done our job. So we've got our rides, and they're a really important base, but at the end of the day, it's our people that really create those memories for the customers. And you have to have a culture that supports that.
3: That's Anthea Hammond, CEO of Scenic World. And we hear from the founder of Keep Cup, the environmentally friendly, reusable cups taking the world by storm.
1: It's old-fashioned selling. Like, it's you have to, you know, talk to someone, see them eye to eye, and you don't have to do that often. Like, you know, a lot of the distributors I've only ever met once, but just having met them, seen their face, heard their voice, it just adds a whole dimension to any further conversations you have on email or phone.
3: That's Abigail Forsyth, CEO of Keep Cup. To hear these stories and to listen to future episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts. And if you've liked the interviews presented, why not leave a review? And that ends Business Essentials Podcast, proudly brought to you with the support of chartered accountants and business advisors, Cummings, Flavor, Cormac. We hope you've enjoyed episode 11. I'm Peter Letts. Thanks for listening.
0: This Business Essentials podcast has been produced by B Media Production, building engagement and adding value through quality audio communication.